Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one- to two-week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. In this special episode of Signposts, I wanted you to listen in on a conversation I had with my friend David French. David is an editor with The Dispatch. He's a former contributor at National Review, and he has been working for a long time on issues of religious liberty and free speech in the legal arena, as well as being a writer and the author of the new book, Divided We Fall. And so he and I talked uh, for a while about where evangelical Christians and others can go from here in our increasingly polarized culture. Dr. Moore, we just had a huge election where the evangelical vote was, again, a subject that was hotly disputed. So we're going to just first welcome Dr. Moore. Second, and I'll just start with uh, the question, what happened, as near as we can tell, with the evangelical vote in 2020? And we'll just start the conversation from there. Well, the short answer is I don't know because the <laughs> uh, exit polls have been all over the place. What I, I said for the past really year uh, mm-hmm. is that I expect that basically the evangelical vote would turn out being similar to what it was in 2016 with a little deviation on either end. And it certainly looks like that's the case. Uh, I don't think we will know until we have properly weighted uh, exit polls. But that seems to be uh, differences between white evangelicals from Black and Hispanic and Asian American uh, evangelicals, but similar groupings is what it appears to be. Which would be overwhelmingly positive, overwhelming support for white evangelical support for President Trump, less overwhelming support amongst Black evangelicals, Latino evangelicals. And and I want to go down that rabbit hole just a little bit. I've got a pet peeve. Why do exit pollers only ask white people (laughs) if they're evangelicals? Because this creates an enormous amount of confusion around the country about what the evangelical church is doing. Well, I think part of it is a a broader cultural ignorance of religion, full stop, Mm -hmm. not just uh, evangelicalism, but, but religion. Uh, because not only is there often an inability to see the differences between different, not only ethnic, but generational and uh, geographical sorts of uh, of differences between evangelicals, not to mention theological. I mean, I, I've had uh, friends who are not uh, religious and not uh, familiar with many religious people other than me send me the viral video of Kenneth Copeland laughing <laughs> trying to laugh the election away and saying, uh, is this what's going on in all of your churches? And having to say, no. So if, if you don't know the difference between 
Kenneth Copeland and Tim Keller and uh, the full range of differences here, you're not really going to, to understand what's going on. So I think that's that's part of the problem. I think everyone but assumes that all black voters are uh, AME, uh, that mm -hmm. all evangelical voters are, are something uh, else. And so I think that's a broader problem. So let, let's kind of go through some of these divisions. We've touched a little bit on, on racial divisions, but it's pretty clear at this point that for example, black evangelicals and white evangelicals vote very differently, very differently. Uh, African-American evangelicals overwhelmingly vote for Democrats, white evangelicals overwhelmingly vote for Republicans. But is there anything interesting happening with the Latino evangelical slice? Are we seeing signs of, of that as a vote more in play or? It, it appears that we are in some places. So, uh, so mm -hmm. again, uh, the, the differences between the Hispanic vote generally in say Florida, from right. uh, Texas, from Arizona, I think probably when all is said and done is also going to apply uh, to the Hispanic evangelical vote. It's just going to be different in Arizona than it is in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, and that's very different than Miami-Dade County uh, and probably for, for different reasons. So there, there's going to be a uh, probably the number one answers given by Hispanic evangelicals in, say, the Rio Grande Valley will be uh, social conservative uh, issues, mm -hmm. uh, abortion, so forth. Probably, if I had to guess, again, we don't have the data on this, in Miami-Dade among Cuban-American evangelicals, it's probably going to be foreign policy and, and, and those sorts of, of issues. And then in Arizona other things. So I think that even within these subcategories, there are subcategories. Right, right. So what we're dealing with is a more diverse voting base, but the biggest one, at least by exit polls, is unquestionably white evangelicals. Well, let's right. dive into that group a little bit more. So mm -hmm. again, we are, we're looking at exit polls that have not been reweighted take some of this with a grain of salt. My, my advisory opinions co-host Sarah Isker's triggered every time I say the words exit polls, especially before they're reweighted. So right. we know we're dealing with imperfect data here, but here's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. An exit poll evangelical is not the same thing as a theological evangelical. The exit right. poll said about 27% of the electorate was white evangelical. Yet by a lot of theological measures, uh, in other words, testing people not by how they say, are you evangelical or not, but by what do you believe about Jesus and the Bible, that slice of America is a lot smaller. Right. Now, what, what are, I mean, what are some of the political, do we really understand what there is, is there a substantial difference between sort of exit poll evangelicals and theological evangelicals? Do we not really know? Yes, I think there is a difference. And I'm mm -hmm. concerned about that in terms of the witness of the church mm -hmm. and the name evangelicalism. I'm not concerned about that in terms of what we see in sociological or political data, because the categories have been the same uh, for right. uh, several years. And I think one of the things we do know is that uh, especially older evangelical voters tend to punch above their weight because they vote yeah. uh, in, in disproportionate numbers. And so uh, sometimes there will be people who will say, well, if we have this uh, sort of secularization that we're seeing in all of these studies, then why do we have uh, all of Well, it's, it's because evangelical voters do vote, at, at least mm -hmm. to this point. 
And I think mm -hmm. that actually is when I'm talking to demographers and others who are thinking about the future of evangelicalism. The first thing that I have to say is there's a sense in the outside world that evangelicalism is primarily a political reality and mm -hmm. a political voting block. And it, it drives me crazy when I'm talking to journalists who think that evangelicals are like cicadas and go into dormancy between Iowa caucuses and then <laughs> reemerge again. That's just not the case. But mm -hmm. also uh, because um, the, the differences between sort of the evangelical constituency that we see now and what may be seen in the future is not so much that one's left and one's, one's right and one's left or, or one's something else. It's the, the, a difference in mentality toward politics altogether. Mm, uh, yeah. And so I, I think sometimes there's a, a, a sense of saying, okay, well, if older evangelicals are in this category, and if there's some changes going on with younger evangelicals, does that mean that they're over in this other category? Not necessarily the case. And so I think it's a it's a much more nuanced conversation than that. So what is that generational shift? I mean, what is, is because I, you know, look, we all have a, what the plural of anecdote is not data. Yeah. Um, we all have a lot of those of us who interact in, in evangelical world have a lot of stories about these generational differences. We have a right. lot of perceptions about it. And my perception is that younger evangelicals are kind of heterodox in their their beliefs. They don't know where they fit in and are kind of cynical about politics. But is that something that you're seeing more broadly or just saying, David, you're, you're just spreading anecdata? <laughs> no, I think, I think that's right. I think where you should look is to church planting movements and to campus ministries. That, that's going mm -hmm. to show you uh, not everything about the future, but it's going to give you a pretty good read on where people are. And so uh, some of the, the fastest growing uh, churches and church movements are these uh, church planting movements that skew very young. Mm -hmm. And some of the places where uh, mass gatherings, at least before COVID, of evangelicals were happening were in terms of campus ministries. Here's the difference. I had a, an elected official who was thinking about running for office at some point. He knew that I had been speaking at this massive uh, campus ministry and church planting uh, movement in Iowa and said, can you connect me together with them? And I said, well, they would be glad to connect with you uh, about going uh, verse by verse through the book of Romans. What they're right. never going to do is to endorse you in the Iowa caucuses or wink, wink, nod, nod, endorse you by having you come up and give your testimony or, or something like that. They're not going to do that because they're dealing with a group of people who are very suspicious of the idea of using Christianity as a means to an end, no matter what mm -hmm. the end is. So that's not going to happen. And they're not going to be doing it with, with anybody. So that means that uh, uh, it seems to me that when you're moving downstream, that those who are trying to engage politically with evangelicals are going to have to do it in a different way. Not, not to mm -hmm. say that they're going to have to do it necessarily with different politics, but it's just not going to be as easy uh, as it, it may have been in the past with people who are accustomed to going to church and having a pastor say, this is who I'm voting for. This is who you should should vote for. You just don't see a lot of that in your under 30 evangelicalism. Well, you know, one of the things when when I talk to folks about evangelicalism, there there is this for people who are outside of that world, I think they often, because they only hear about evangelicals 
when elections are at stake. Yeah, right. They tend to think of evangelical churches as these highly political organisms. Right. When, you know, I, I, ne- I there's a, not a time in my life when I don't remember going to church, but I could probably count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I heard an explicitly sort of political sermon, and I've never heard one endorsing one candidate or the other. So, you know, number one, I mean, am I the aberration here or is this more the mainstream of evangelical life? And if if what my experience is in the mainstream, where are people getting their political values when they're when it's not being promoted from the pulpit? Well, again, I think there's a kaleidoscope of different evangelicalisms. And so yeah. uh, I think there may be somebody in perhaps one wing of Pentecostalism who would say, you've never been in a church where a candidate's been endorsed every, uh, yeah, I, I remember <laughs> that all the time. And, mm-hmm. and someone else uh, may be in a confessional Presbyterian context who says uh, we would be excommunicated if we ever, if we ever <laughs> did that and everything in between. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think it I think it applies differently from from tribe of evangelicalism to tribe of evangelicalism and from church to church. What I have seen is uh, in the past much more of a halfway uh, sort of endorsement and mobilization, and mostly that's on the local level or the the state level. I, I've seen churches where uh, someone has said, "Here's." County Supervisor uh, John Smith, uh, he's a he's a great believer. He's coming to tell you about his uh, experience with Christ. It just happens to be two weeks before the election for county supervisor. That happens, right. and that that still happens, uh, but it's happening, I think, less and less. And so the 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 same kinds of ways of engaging uh, these voters. I think are going to have diminishing returns. Uh, there are ways to engage those voters, but I think they're going to have to be different in the same way that, uh, that the way that we reach the general population uh, across the board for anything has changed. Some of the methods are the same, television, mm-hmm. advertising, and, and so forth. But if you're investing most of your resources on engaging voters in print advertising rather than in digital uh, mobilization. It's not going to work. And I think that's going to be the same with evangelicals. So the stereotype is that if you're talking about an evangelical voter, especially the white evangelical voting block, that the issue set is kind of, the list is kind of short. It's abortion, it's religious liberty, maybe in a second tier issue, it might be Israel, for example. Do you see that changing or do you see that sort of being the core issue set going forward? I, I don't see uh, much changing in terms of abortion, because that's one of those areas in almost every uh, survey that has been done, from baby boomer evangelicals all the way down to Gen Z. That's the one thing that doesn't change. And if it does, it means a heightened concern about abortion as you go younger, not a, right. not a lessening concern about abortion. Uh, so, I mean, it remains to be seen, but I don't see that one changing. I, I do think that if someone's trying to understand these voters, they need to understand the difference between a single issue voter and a single issue as a threshold sort of voter. So I, I don't find many people of any sort who are voting on one issue, but I do find a lot of people who say, this is the, the, the floor right. that I need to, to have before I start to, to consider you. Um, and so I think that I don't I don't see that changing anytime soon. 
For a lot of people, for some voters, it's necessary and sufficient. That's all that I need. Right. Many other voters, it, it's necessary, but not sufficient. You gotcha. have to be pro-life, but also I'm going to add other tests on top of that. Now, l- let's talk about race uh, for a minute. Post-George, when, when, you know, in the just unbelievable em- emotional national convulsion after the George Floyd killing, this sort of national reckoning, I think I saw more people in the church than I've seen in, since I can remember who really said, we want to do something about this. We want to do something about this. And it wasn't so much in the political context, but I just saw a lot of anguish about it. Is that still out there? Is that dissipating? Has that been swept away by all the storm and drying of 2020? Or is that, is that a still a real thing? I think it's still a real thing. I think the, the problem and the obstacle there is exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I hear every week from pastors who are concerned about this issue, uh, they speak to their congregations. And as one of them said to me very recently, most of the people in my congregation actually agree with me. But I have a very, very small uh, minority within the congregation who don't uh, agree with me. And what he was talking about is just basic Galatians 2 and 3, Ephesians 2 and 3 sort of understanding of common humanity. But that small minority was enough to make his life completely miserable. So there's a sense of exhaustion for some people. But then also because they realize and they know this is a long-term project. This is a a deep and long-lasting problem and is not going to be resolved simply by having an emphasis Sunday or or some some cosmetic sorts of changes. It's going to take a long haul. And so my primary worry right now is cynicism across Mm -hmm. the ethnic and racial spectrum and evangelicalism of uh, people saying, this isn't going to work. And so we, as the Bible puts it, grow weary in well-doing and just give up. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't... I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. 
This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Well, there seems to be a a sad tendency that if you even bring up race as a priority to address, that the whether we're going to, let's not use the buzzwords that are so contentious like critical race theory or systemic racism. I just used them, but let's set them aside for the moment. There seems to be a a sense in which in some circumstances, if you bring, even bring it up as a priority, that that is decried as wokeism. Yeah. That that that's going to lead to critique just the mere desire to put that as an issue in front of the congregation. Yeah. And I, I have, bet that if you put a gun to my head and said, find a conservative evangelical who's influenced by critical race theory, I would be hard pressed <laughs> to, to get out of that encounter alive by, by thinking of someone. Um, but it's very similar to what was going on, at least rhetorically, in the 1950s, 1960s, where any, even the most minimal uh, conversation about the common humanity that we have in Adam and in Christ uh, would then be, well, you're, you're moving toward communism. Uh, mm-hmm. You're, you're mm-hmm. a Marxist. And I, I can just look through the hate mail that my predecessor in the 1960s uh, had. And it was always, well, you are associated with so-and-so and so-and-so is associated with so-and-so who is right. a Marxist. Therefore, uh, you're moving us toward Marxism. That's that's always going to happen. What I think individual churches and people need to do is to conclude what's right, yeah. uh, what, what's what's morally right, and I'm going to and I'm going to stand there, and I'm going to seek to persuade people. There are going to be some people you're never going to persuade, especially on uh, the race issue. But there are going to be a lot of other people who really can be moved along, and, and we just can't give up on that. So I'm I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to go off the little uh, outline I, I texted to you, but I know you can. I know you've got a whole album side on this. But you said something that was interesting to me that that triggered something that I think we need to be flagging in our national conversation about religion. You said something about the pressure on pastors. Yeah, it has struck me that we may be having a quiet crisis amongst our pastors in 2020. They've had to deal with a pandemic. where they've been physically separated from their congregation. They've dealt with racial unrest, which has brought a huge conversation into the church. They've dealt with an incredibly contentious election. All of these things happening at once, where a lot of members of the congregation are looking to them to have all of the answers. (laughs) There is no question about it. And I'm having this conversation multiple times every day uh, with pastors who are completely exhausted. It reminds me a bit, uh, I grew up, I'm from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. After Katrina, there were a lot of pastors who would say, just between you and me, I'm getting my church through the, the aftermath of Katrina, mm-hmm. but then I'm just going to collapse. I, I don't think that I can keep doing this. And a lot of them did. It, it sounds very similar to me because pastors are, as you say, they're dealing with COVID wars, uh, with, with people moving from one church to the other based upon whether the pastor talks about masks or doesn't talk about masks or, uh, or so forth, and they're exhausted. And then you add to that the election uh, and the sorts of divisions that take place among people. And one pastor uh, said to me leading up to the election, at this point, I just want the election to be over 
and I just want it to not be a close call. So right. that whatever the country is going to do, we can just move forward. Well, I think what he didn't see is that we could uh, end up in a situation where we're even arguing about whether it's a close call. Uh, is uh, 306 <laughs> electoral votes uh, a close call or not when it's happening on the basis of, of very small margins in some states? So I think there is a, a crisis going on right now with just exhausted pastors, very similar, uh, I think, in some ways to what we see among healthcare workers who are just, uh, they're, they're pouring themselves into it. And then you add to it, I think there are a lot of people in the outside world who don't understand religious people who mm -hmm. have seen people on television saying, well, the blood of Jesus covers us. It doesn't matter whether or not we, we're wearing masks or, or being right up against one another with, with COVID. I know almost no pastor in that category at all. Uh, they are the ones who are actually on the front lines here. And it's, uh, it's exhausting for many of them. Well, you know, that goes to one of the problems that we have. I think that it creates a mutual distrust cycle is that there are certain people who will be very aggressive, say very aggressive politically or very aggressive in defying COVID restrictions. Yeah. And they might be one church out of 100 right. in a community. Right. And, and so if you're in the 99 that's doing the right thing, you're kind of saying, where's the story about us? Right. But at the same time, you're tied to the one out of 100. And it, it builds an enormous amount of mutual suspicion and distrust. Not only that. But the 99 are not going to say the, the one church that's saying COVID is a hoax or, or that praying enough will keep it away from. They're not going to stand up and say, that's kooky. Uh, right. They're just not going to do that because they're going to say, let's maintain uh, the unity of the body and the sorts of personality and, and spiritual maturity uh, mm -hmm. aspects that would, would keep them where they are will also prevent them. They're not going to hold a press conference to say, here's right. what we're doing right. And th that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, you know, I guess it's part of the job of people like me in the media to highlight those churches who do things right. Like I, right. I had a extended essay about Capitol Hill Baptist church and the mm -hmm. way in which they had worked so hard to try to accommodate yes. Washington DC's concerns and D.C. had still not granted them the same rights they granted restaurants, for example. Right. And that circumstance, it struck me as entirely appropriate, necessary even to defend your religious liberty rights. Right. Um, so moving on just a little bit from that, talking about this unity and division point, there seems to be a paradox. If you're an online evangelical, you would think that the church is remarkably divided. Like, mm -hmm. Uh, if Twitter evangelicalism, people are quote tweeting and sniping and fighting yeah. and the op-eds are flying. If you weren't reading Twitter, you would think it's the most monolithic group of people in America. Right, right. You know, 75 to 80% GOP for white evangelicals. And what are, are we as divided as we seem online? Are we as united as we seem offline? Where are we? Even when some of those things do line up with reality, the level of division ordinarily doesn't line up uh, in terms of reality. Right. So uh, most people are actually able to say, I think this way and you think this way, and we're able to uh, relate to one another and to continue to go forward. It's what happens in that ecosystem of social media 
but that has real world uh, implications. Yeah. I mean, th this is when I'm dealing with pastors who are exhausted, social media comes up immediately. Uh, yeah. a, a pastor will say to me, uh, one said to me a couple of weeks ago, I feel like a failure, not because of what my people think, but because of the way that they relate to one another on Facebook. He said, and I look at that and I say, I've given 20 years of my life uh, to building these people uh, up. And then I look like a failure. And I had to say, I think I mean, the social media is like starlight. It, you're, you're sort of seeing <laughs> things that, that existed long ago coming to fruition. And it probably will be better for you to love your people if you're not following them in terms of yeah. uh, what they're doing on social media, because it is a very different uh, reality. And I mean, one of the things that has come up multiple times just in the past several days about the national campaigns, the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign, largely used social media, but they didn't listen to Twitter, especially mm -hmm. as a real ecosystem. Uh, if one had, uh, then then we wouldn't have ended up with with the sort of uh, campaign that we had. I, I think that I think all of us should sort of pay attention to that. You know, there's this old saying, I'm sure you've heard it a million times, that in churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Yes. I think in churches, about 20% of the people do 80% of the division. Oh, no, well, if, if not even that. I mean, it's, uh, I, had a, I had a conversation, and this is not widespread. I hesitate to even bring it up because someone who's not religious will see this and say, oh, this is religious people. Any sort of organization can have something like this. A congregation that had a moon landing denier uh, in, the, in the congregation. And it was the sort of thing where nobody else held this view, but there was only one person in that church that cared about uh, discussing Buzz Aldrin and the moon landing, and it was this one lady. And so uh, that, that meant it was everybody's issue just in terms of trying to avoid the conversation, if nothing else. I think that applies to everything else. And it, it, it also isn't unique uh, mm -hmm. to religious communities. I, I've had a conversation with a completely non-religious, politically liberal person who's talking about the same dynamics uh, going on in his uh, community action uh, organization. So I think that's part of created but fallen human nature. So last question, we've just got a little bit of time. What would you say, look for this to be one of the main, primary changes you see in the next, say, five years of evangelicalism? What is the X factor? What is something that you're going to see change, or even just if it's incrementally in the next five years of evangelicalism? I think one of those things is going to be the response to secularism and secularization, uh, which is going to be very different than than what we've seen uh, lately. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, go to these evangelical campus ministries. And I'm not just mm -hmm. talking about an evangelical college, although that's important. Right. But look also at the evangelical campus ministries at your Texas A&M, your Yale, uh, your, your mm -hmm. any other uh, campus, and to these church planting movements and say, what's the same and what's different? Now, th those are constantly changing too, but they're, they're just very different from what many people have uh, been accustomed to with evangelical life. Excellent. Well, Dr. Moore, thank you so much for joining us and uh, thank you for your work on behalf of religious liberty and life and on, on behalf of the church. Much appreciated. Likewise. Likewise, thanks for having me. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signpost.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.